you for joining Pete and I today on our discussion of recovery and recovery treatment options, alternatives, all the fun facts you never knew you wanted to know about recovery. Um, and we t we've talked a few times now about our own personal experiences with recovery and you know what works for us, what our, what our individual personalized uh, methodologies are for maintaining our sobriety. And um, you know, though we may have different approaches, perspectives, the one thing we have in common is that we have that we've made the choice and we have the desire to remain to be and remain sober. So with that, uh, and we discussed looking into, you know, percentages, like what are the numbers? What are the numbers telling us for 12 step versus mutual help or secular organizations? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I will turn it over to Pete. Fantastic intro there. Uh, and Rebecca, thank you for that. Um, so what I did was I was looking at some of the, really the, I went after the some statistics of um, <clears throat> what are we facing, you know, really in the in this country and uh, some of the the big big numbers, really, you know. For instance, you know, 53 million um, or 19 percent of Americans over the age of 12 have used an illegal drug, you know, in the past year. These are some of those things that. Uh, you didn't know you wanted to know, but here we are. Um, the 11% uh, of Americans over the age of 12 are regular illegal drug users. The 39% um, of Americans between the ages of 18 and 25 years old used drugs within the last year. 70% of people who tried drugs before the age of 13 will develop uh, an addiction within seven years of that time. So, and the, the you know, these lists goes on and on. This is just general uh, drug use, which can be from uh, airplane glue to alcohol, to marijuana, to cocaine, to, you know, variety of illicit drugs. Um, now, then of course, we know we have had <clears throat> the opiate crisis, the way people got from, I guess it probably started with uh, opiate, the opiate crisis then, or went from meth, to the opiate, to the heroin to get off the opiates, to uh, just now fentanyl. And we all know if we just turn on the news for five minutes, we can we hear about this the fentanyl crisis out there. So there is a, a quite a need out there for really the information that we're putting out on our podcast. Um, <clears throat> so the but kind of by the numbers, I, I'm not going to go a ton in, but there have been. Um, 28,000 plus fentanyl related overdoses in the last year, 17,000 prescription opioid related overdoses, and then 15,000 heroin related. So there's no time like today for us to examine and do uh i'm almost thinking you know more than likely part one or part whatever of this and start just feeding information out there of what to do where to go what are some of the warning signs what are what can people do because in all the research that i was doing <clears throat> i think rebecca might come up with this same thing as well is that uh, we can recover, you know, and what was the one thing I didn't mention? The oldest known drug demand and that's alcohol, you know, and that just, you know, I don't 
necessarily care or if that could be a gateway drug or because it does just as much damage as the other things as well. You know, breaks down body parts, liver, uh, destroys things, destroys families, destroys lives, and it can also uh, kill you. So these numbers that are out there, I would recommend anybody just start Googling or looking at some of the numbers. Even uh, marijuana is in there. You know, 43% of college students report using marijuana. You know, that's all, that's almost half. Um, Marijuana-related emergency room visits increased 54%. Uh, suicide in which marijuana was found present in toxicology reports uh, increased from 7% to 23%. So that's, that's quite that's huge. You know, I used that. well, I think the marijuana that um, your the older folks used to smoke, uh, I guess back in my day, a long time ago, uh, the percentage of uh, THC in that was probably around two to three percent. Uh, now with these hybrids and the growth operations and um, the way that they're splicing these the marijuana and the cannabis together, they're getting up to 15% uh, THC levels in those. And, you know, the reactions there are obvious. Uh, the leading states currently, you know, West Virginia, unfortunately, West Virginia was the number one state in overdose deaths uh, by 51.5 deaths per 100,000 people. And yeah, it's very sad. And I would have to look into it a little bit deeper, but I believe West Virginia was number one in the meth epidemic. They were definitely number one in the opiate and more than likely number one in the heroin. And probably, I do believe also number one now in the fentanyl. So West Virginia is is really being devastated um, right under our noses, right as we speak today. So those are some of the stats that I have. And I do have some um, statistics also on uh, drug addiction. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to jump in and go over a couple of the things that you found or some questions on this? Well, I I have some questions. Um, now, other countries have instituted programs, you know, needle exchange programs or safe drug use sites, uh, Scandinavian countries, Western European countries. Um, and I wonder if, if that would be, I mean, it's not going to curb addiction. It's not going to it's not going to curb addiction, but it curbs fatality, addiction-related fatalities, which I think is a positive thing. Um, I don't see any downside to having safe needle programs in cities because, you know, with all of the emotional baggage that comes with being an addict or an alcoholic, whatever your drug of choice is, all the emotional baggage that comes with that you also have the physical baggage, you know, the being maybe you're unsheltered. You have been cast out of, you know, your family, family environment. You have to maintain some sort of um, you have to maintain some sort of sobriety. And for many addicts, sobriety is getting, you know, getting getting well. In a, in a way, in a sense, you know, so I wonder if, you know, if not to, we're not going to curb addiction, but maybe some safe drug use sites. And I also wonder with um, the advancing movement of legalization of marijuana across the United States, I wonder, I wonder what impact that may have on rates of addiction, positive or negative. 
Um, you know, some people do use marijuana or THC, CBD as medicine for, you know, soft muscle, muscle tissue damages, um, you know, endometriosis. Some people use THE or CBD for that. Um, and I just wonder where, where the line is with marijuana, because as far as I know, and in my experience, there's nothing really addictive about marijuana, marijuana chemically. Other, you know, the addiction is, you know, the the ritual of it, getting the product, ingesting the product, the social ritual of it, um, and the psychological release that you think you're getting by getting high, you know, smoking a joint, a bowl, vaping, however you ingest, um, you know, or making some brownies, whatever you do with it. Um, so I wonder what this advancing or this this movement that's gaining steam nationwide to legalize marijuana would do to addiction rates. Um, but like you said, the oldest addictive substance that we have in our society is alcohol. And that's been legal for everyone forever. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's such a unique unique drug because it is legal it's celebrated it's restricted and in that restrict it's restricted until people are 21 and in that restriction there's a cultivated enticement in the, the ritualistic participation of it when you're 21 go out you do 21 shots right or whatever you do bar crawls or keg parties and keg stands and all the all the things that go along with alcohol um, that are that are so forbidden until you reach this this monumental birthday, and then you can plunge headlong into socially accepted addiction. And then once you speak up about it, you know you're stigmatized and you're outcast because you don't go along with the prevailing idea that imbibing alcohol is a good time or a positive and productive thing. So I just wonder. Well, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder why the disconnect between people being against the legalization of marijuana, but celebrating alcohol use, or even moving to lower. I know some people have made the argument to lower the drinking age to eighteen because if you can die for your country, why can't you go out and have a beer? So I just wonder why there's a disconnect there. Um, since you uh, mentioned alcohol, um, yeah. I think, okay, so a couple of things there. I think, so we happen to have here in, in my state is a uh, recovering alcoholic governor. And she <clears throat> is dead set against the legalization of it. Uh, we have a medical marijuana law or medical CBD and it's extremely difficult to to use it um, stock of the product is is rare so there's the difficulty there and I think it's a matter of her perspective of how she thinks that she believes that marijuana is a gateway drug to uh, harder drugs but i don't know if she thinks that the marijuana is a gateway to alcohol or if, if she kind of has that separated out if she thinks marijuana will go to meth heroin opioids you know things like that i just i'm not sure about that um so i know here um there's great resistance and then i don't see it happening uh, for quite a while i think in colorado i think what they saw was um a dollars and when they legalized it that it was proven to be true that i mean they're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that they made on that the sales of that <clears throat> now as far as the needle injection sites i must be very jaded or really skeptical because 
Um, <clears throat> I don't think that's a, a very popular thing uh, because somebody hasn't figured out how to make money off it and how to profit off it. I will say it, it you know, today um, that now I just Googled here, nation's first supervised drug injection sites in New York City. Uh, during the first official day in operation at the two Manhattan facilities, trained staff reversed two OD um, in that in at that site. So if it's about saving lives, there's two, you know, two lives that they were able to save on day one. So, and it's really just an attempt to curb, you know, overdose deaths caused by this process. And I was watching a documentary the other day and it was um, <clears throat> kind of how, you know, they're, these folks are still are actually using fentanyl. They've got it in that powder form and they're taking it out of that baggie. But when they're at a site like that, at a supervised site like that, they're they're able to kind of say, you know, that okay, this is this is the right amount, or this is, you know, one doctor said, you know, six grains of fentanyl can get you high, eight grains of fentanyl can kill you. You know. So, but with the site, um, does it promote it? I don't think it promotes it. I just think it makes it safer. It makes it smarter. Um, there's got to be information there for people that are are hoping to maybe kick it and get into some kind of a treatment program, trying to help. Because really the only people that... Uh, not the only people, but the people that had that desire to stop drinking, they had to do something first. And I always call it walk through the door. You know, you walk through the door of a treatment center. I walked into a treatment center as well and saw something that I wanted. And I walked into the doors of a meeting where, okay, now whatever, the collective can start helping me and uh, doing that. But you had to get in the door first. And I think with these sites like that, I think there should be more of them. I think there needs to be more of them. Um, but the problem is, is that there it's probably public money. And public, the public, certain sections of the public don't want to, uh, you know, foot the bill for it. Yes. Uh, they yes. bill on the back end. Yes. You know, they're still footing the bill. So... Um, it's a very, I, I hate to say it, but it's probably an extremely politicized issue. And once it gets there, then. Yeah. We're... Yeah, definitely. But you mentioned something, you said something, you said getting in the door. And getting in the door, either a treatment center, a, a, a meeting, a recovery group of some sort. And we talked to you talked about numbers. And I was I my my research or my investigations here were mostly focused around alcohol. And what I found was people in recovery or looking forward towards recovery are very hot out, out of the gate. They go all in and then it fades, it trickles off. You know, uh, consistency falls off, um, persistence in recovery, because you have to be persistent, that falls off. And in some cases, especially with um, uh, women or other minority groups, um, there's a lack of seeking out treatment because there is such a stigma. And there's also just a lack of cultural or societal support for women or other minority groups to seek help because in some sense they're already overburdened with responsibilities or you know they may or may not be if if it's a sexual minority group that we're discussing you know they may or may not be out if they are out they may be 
they may have been, you know, cast out from their family or, you know, socially um, marginalized in some way. So going to seek treatment either at a center or in a community organization would compound the stigma that they already face. So I wonder, you know, what, what can, what can we, and by mean, we, I mean, you know, society, but treatment groups, centers, recovery or recovery organizations in general do to combat compounding the stigma to encourage people and support people more to say, you know, I, I recognize that I need help and I recognize that this is the place where I can get help. How how do we how do we how do we make the connections? How do we make it more accessible and how do we break down the fear of more stigmatization? Because what I found was in I'm sorry, in in looking at these different different studies that I found, you know, women, you know, women of color um, and Latina women kind of go in an inverse with alcohol use and, or alcohol misuse um, than white women. White women tend to go hard when they're very young and then and then kind of curb their drinking as they age, at least what's been reported. Whereas uh, women of color, you know, black women, Latino women, that from the studies that I've seen are not as, are not as um, invested in drinking in their young, early 20s until later in their 40s, as it's been reported, you know, 35 to 45 range, the, the numbers kind of go up for those populations. So I just wonder, you know, where was I going with this? I just wonder, you know, what, what, what stops them reporting their drug use or alcohol use, drug and alcohol use, and what can we do to make it less of uh, an added stigmatization to a minority person, a woman of color, a sexual minority, anything like that? Yeah. Wow, that's that's a great question. So it's kind of what popped into my head is. Um, you know, your question could be, how do we build their door? How do we build that door for them to come on through and say, hey, this is, you know, because I can only imagine the stigma that's already compounded by, um, you know, just because it says in there, uh, creed, race, religion, lack of religion, sexual identity, it doesn't matter. You're all welcome. But still, culturally, they're still now having to add this new stigma on top of, you know, it's like, the, is it the straw that's going to break that camel's back and they would rather just stay in, in their, in the mode that they're in? <clears throat> that is a very interesting question. And one of the things I found, and I think this is goes across all uh, the entire spectrum of substance use disorder, is that recovery programs were designed for one specific group. That was men, white men. So, you know, what what does that say? Like, what what hope does that give to a person of color, a, a, a woman, a person who identifies as female, who is a person of color? Like, how does that? How do we how do we how do we manage that? And I just um, and what uh, you know and what can we do to make it less of a less of a do or die? Right. Now, I know I know drug use is and alcohol use or misuse. You know that you're there's a chance that you could overdose. There's a chance you could get be in a fatal car accident, liver failure congestive heart failure, all of these horrible things, these attendant problems that come with uh, substance use disorder. But I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think that the do or die of some recovery or treatment programs is welcoming. You know, uh, the treatment center I went to was great. I'm sober. It was awesome. I love it. And I'm I, in fact, reached out to them earlier this week or late last week about going back and speaking. But um, 
I just don't agree with, you know, living for today and only today. You know, I think in the one day at a time thing, I think, you know, you have to live maybe three days in the future because you need to, you need to, yeah, <laughs> uh, but for me, and you know, it's, you know, it's an individual process and, and uh, curation of recovery, I guess, but you know, for me, I needed to plan at least three days in advance, you know, because if I lose it today, I don't have a tomorrow. So I want to look for tomorrow and keep today. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You know, and then usually my, my wry sense of humor throws up and says, well, we are talking about gender. And so seeing though I'm a guy, thinking three days ahead is a daunting task. I don't know how I'm going to ever achieve that. You know, let me just get, you know, to tomorrow. I could think till tomorrow. That's good. But I know you are very scheduled and, and you like that, you know, I work better, you know, ahead when I have a schedule. I'm kind of a still the old fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. But I think though, what comes to my mind when I was, uh, when I got clean in Minneapolis, um, there is, you know, there's like a huge circle around the city. <clears throat> and um, so I'd go, first meeting I went to was my, ended up kind of being my home home group. There's, you know, 100, maybe 100, 150 people in there. And uh, you break down into small groups, you know, and then talk about whatever the topic was or what have you. And then started going out and about. And so growing up in, you know, with North Minneapolis in the, you know, in the urban setting, going to school in just outside of downtown Minneapolis, uh, going to meetings there, you would see a, a huge representation of the uh, inethnic community at the meetings. So I think you you would be surprised at how uh, that they do have a place and they know there's a place for us as addicts, no matter what your color is, no matter what uh, your sexual identity is, it just didn't matter. Because I think in the inner city that I think that's okay. I think once you get out into a, a larger or a different space, maybe that could be more of a more of a factor um but by your reporting it sure sounds like there's a gap there by what you've seen or what you researched yeah there definitely is i mean the the number of, <clears throat> of unreported abuse in sexual minority groups or you know um ethnic minority groups is astounding uh, and I just, I just wish there was a way to uh, remove the fear of stigmatization. Yeah, yeah, and I, then, it's, yeah. I, 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 you know, feel also in uh, a lot of mental health, uh, mental health things, uh, early childhood traumas, all that, um, you know, and the stigmatization there is. Uh, um, that is probably the most difficult thing to overcome and to eliminate. And I think the more we say it and the more information we keep putting out there about it, I think that's where um, we're going to find you know, more answers and it's gonna become less and less of a stigma, the more it just takes going to take time, time and time. But um, that's a tough and, one. And I think one of one of the ways in my thinking to maybe open up a recovery space for people is to maybe change the language of recovery. 
Um, I, I ju just noted a few things. You know, I think last time you and I spoke um, off the record, uh, we talked about defects, personality defects. That's something that is was brought up in my recovery treatment. Um, and when you when you are at a meeting, you what, what do you do? You qualify, and you know there are all these kind of kind of like pseudo scientific, almost re quasi religious terminologies. You know the ministry, a recovery ministry. AA is a recovery ministry, and I think with as secular as our society is, I mean we. I mean, there are large groups of people in the nation that believe in God and practice the faith. But I think if we're really going to make strides in recovery, I think maybe taking out some of that language, because I don't know, and this is something that I'm just thinking of now, I don't know what percentage of people in full-on addiction are, you know, theistic. But I think that could be a barrier. You know, we have AA, which is, you know, the higher power model. Um, but there are plenty of other groups that that follow maybe a 4.8 point or even a 10 point uh, recovery model or paradigm that are not spiritually, not spiritually guided or centered. There are, I have seen the, um, there's definitely information out there, um, you know, 12-step recovery for the atheist and for the agnostic and uh, things like that, where they do take out the word um, God and um, they, I, I don't think, you know, for those folks that, if that one word is the difference from them stepping across that threshold and coming in or staying out, then <clears throat> there has got to be, you have to, you know, there has to be an option there, or I would hope that there's going to be, they find an option there to get into a at least the the first piece of it whether it's mm -hmm. a constant going to meetings going to meetings or a uh, a uh, program a treatment program that doesn't have it because it's enough of a, a to try to uh, um, do that whether uh, without the God thing or the religion thing. Um, for me, it was, it was like, I, I think I had, we talked maybe off the record to where, you know, grew up in the Catholic church and altar boy and all those things that come with that. Um, so it was kind of difficult for me at first. And then um, I tried to uh, lower its importance on the actual word and focus on what the rest of the process was saying, you know, to get better, to um, use these new tools that I have, you know, I knew I was powerless over my addiction and because I couldn't stop. And um, the next steps gave me power. And, um, but it was actually me doing the work and going in there where there was a higher power giving me assistance. Great. But um, that is a very contentious thing in the, with the 12 step. And I think that's where, isn't there like a, uh, another program that you had looked at an alternate treatment recovery program that you looked at that, that kind of, took that right out of there or um the god thing yeah the smart uh, thing yeah well actually i have a powerpoint that i can share pray tell <laughs> <laughs> well let, 
fingers crossed the technology is on our side and I can do it. Let's see. Um, uh, um, okay, so recovery. You have options. Um, these are just some terms that I found that uh, through my research um, about dependence, the last um, the last box there is um, is the website where I where I found these. But the terms are still dependent, partial remission, asymptomatic risk, low risk, and abstainer. Um, which uh oh, how do I get back here? Um, and uh, no, now I don't know how to. <laughs> sorry. Technical difficulties. I don't know how to change the page. Um, let me go back here. Okay, an abstainer. Uh, these and these are goodness gracious. Sorry, sorry. Technical difficulty. Um, these are elements that I found that are common in recovery: um, abstinence and recovery, essentials in recovery, enriched recovery, spirituality of recovery. And spirituality, I should note, is not strictly limited to a. a God figure or a theist, traditional like theistic religion. It's just, I think, I think I provide the definition here. Um, abstinence. I think that's pretty well self-explanatory. Essentials of recovery. One thing I did find throughout all the recovery programs that I looked at was community, being just you know finding a community that supports your your new life because you are essentially a new person you're i always think of it as you know i was born again it was my birthday you know just i'm a completely different person now than i was when i was in my active my active addiction um and you do have to do all of these things are essential you know, being able to deal with cha challenging situations in healthy ways in your relationships, dealing with your negative feelings, dealing with your family and friends, because not all of your family and friends are going to support you in your recovery and dealing with your mistakes, either mistakes you made while you were in addiction, mistakes you made while you were in recovery or mistakes you've made once you're recovered. You just have to learn how to deal with all of that without the crutch that you've depended on for however long. Um, you just have to be honest and realistic. Um, you're going to change everything about your life. You're going to change the way you walk into a store, the way you walk into, uh, you know, your house, wherever you live, the way you drive is going to be completely different. All of these little things you never thought would be affected. I remember I went, I watched a movie that I had seen a million times and I thought, I've never seen this sober. This is amazing. Wow. I, it's just, and it was one of my favorite movies. Why it was my favorite movie? I couldn't tell you because I was drunk all the time. You know, that's just, it's just these crazy things. Um, physical changes, you know, whether you use to get well, you're not going to need to do that anymore. You're going to have all this extra time on your hands. You know, I, I struggled for so long. What do I do with myself? Because it's, it's five o'clock somewhere, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with all this time. And I didn't know what to do with the time that I recovered not being hungover. It was a crazy, crazy thing. Um, elements to enrich recovery. I think what spirituality in the previous slide refers to is something that gives you inner peace. I mean, it can be a God or a God figure, whatever you like, but I think it means, you know, finding an inner peace and finding something that 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 compels you to maintain sobriety. Um, let's see, uh, spirituality and recovery, connection, community, giving back, gratitude, helping others. Gratitude journals were a great way for me to start down the road. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, it's, it, Technically, doesn't have to. It's not specific to religion, and I forget where I was going with this. Ah, here we go. Not faith-based, twelve-step alternatives. So here we see smart, 
recovery, which is spelled recovery, spelled wrong, I just see now. Um, but uh, SMART is based on, you know, CBT theory, theory cognitive behavior, behavioral theory, which is think it, act it, that's connecting your thoughts and your actions, right? Like uh, dialectical behavior theater theory, it's the same kind of thing. Like you talk with your, your body language, you talk with your body. It's a thinking body, feeling mind sort of thing. Like your body, your body thinks and your mind feels and it's just connecting those and making them kind of act in, in unison. Um, there's refuge recovery, which is a Buddhist based 12 step. Uh, it has a good success and retention rate. Uh, life ring, which I don't think I'm really sold on. Uh, life ring and SOS, I'm not really sold on. Women for Sobriety is a secular uh, organization for women. And I think that's great that I know there are uh, women only AA meetings. I've gone to a few, but I think having a a society specifically for women outside of AA is great. Um, moderation management is very science-based, has a lot of steps. I have links to everything, but um, it's it's very science-based. It's very procedural almost. Um, folk time, I mean, it's pretty folky. Um, and reimagining recovery. I think I have a little bit about those. There's smart, refuge, Life ring, uh, I, I don't really think this is a productive, I didn't, I don't have any numbers or anything, but I don't really, I'm not too jazzed about this one. Um, women for sobriety, yes, secular, not too, moderation management, it's, it, it is what it is. It's, it's very procedural, scientific, it's about moderating, um, not necessarily sobriety and abstinence. Um, this, yeah, neurodiversity, that's good. This is a network I found, Oregon Recovery Network has a wealth of resources for anybody who's in treatment. Unfortunately, this is all on the West Coast. Um, I found another one through them, actually, I emailed them. This is in Pennsylvania, Pro-A. Again, a wealth of resources. So I will caution that there are some in there, I think I found one. It's called Mom's Tell. Is um, I don't I don't know. It's very religious. I don't know, but you know, I'm just so you know, it's sharing information. Oh, and it's Recovery Month. And here are some more resources that I found. But uh, and now I forget the question. <laughs> no, we were. I think we were talking about um, the uh, types of recovery, whether it's, uh, is it, was it possible if it's, you know, a non-religious or uh, just another way <clears throat> that gives people that are at the problem with it, a, a spiritual program, is there a way? Is there a way to recovery? Is there a place for them? Is there a place that they can feel comfortable, which is the key? And yes, there is. Basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You are. There's always there's always a place. There's always a way. It's just a question of how much and how willing you are to dedicate to it. You know, uh, smart moderation management. I think smart. You don't have to commit to abstinence and total sobriety, I think you can do a little bit of uh, managing in SMART. Moderation management, like I said, is managing. Uh, refuge, sobriety, life ring, sobriety, women for sobriety, sobriety, sobriety. But uh, these, bo this bottom tier here, moderation, folk time, and reimagining, I think, especially these two, moderation and folk time are more, are friendlier to moderating use. Um, I do have a chart here um, to confirm that or to validate that, which I can I can upload um, to the site. But um, yeah, so there are options. There are treatments available, and you know they're willing to take you in with open arms.
yeah. everywhere. It's just there's like I, you know, I language is my thing. The way the way things are conveyed kind of bothers me sometimes. You know, like I said, defects or qualifying and and all of these different quasi religious pseudo scientific terminologies that some groups utilize to 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 get to involve people not to get not to lure people in or not to get people involved to get people involved you know just to just to help them i think maybe off putting to some people and i you know i'm always thinking of ways to include others and and to allow for diversity in any environment and i think recovery it's in recovery it's especially important because of the the number of addiction and need that goes unreported because of stigmas whether it's you know whatever it's coming from whatever it's based on you know so yeah and i i still think that um it just kind of came to me now i think that in the big book that they call it the AA big book you can find that there is probably still some, you know, 1935 uh, language in there. And um, at that time, back in the 30s, the, you know, the defect of character was one of the better ways that Bill was able to describe, you know, anger, bitterness, resentfulness, things like that. And, you know, to try to say, hey, that, that's, you know, one of your defects of your particular character. And, you know, we're asking a, you know, to try, these steps are what we're gonna use to remove those from you. Um, but I get where um, some of the language, do you remember we read that one piece there and it sure seemed that it was kind of, poorly written you know to really for somebody to understand wow how does that how do i connect to that you know how does that make sense for me and it was uh, i can't remember was it our the defects of character part or i can't remember exactly what we were reading but i think and so today though and after it, the movement started getting going uh, to try to get anything changed from what the you know the icon of aa wrote uh it was probably near impossible to try to you know get what he wrote changed uh to get into you know more mainstream and more inclusive um i do know they probably put in the you know sexual identity and race creed all of those very important things in there um but to change some of the other things i i think you know for lack of a better term we probably take an act of god to change it um yes. yeah. so <clears throat> that's why i think they're you know people that are uh like you and many others me too you know words are important and um when it doesn't connect right then it creates an issue for me which takes me away from my primary purpose and that is you know to stay clean and sober um i did know thing that it, it's funny how some of these things kind of intertwine and as you're looking through it because we may have landed on the same similar page because i have those uh uh life ring and things like that in there um two of the things that have helped me uh greatly well there's three things uh, it's got um individual therapy cognitive behavioral therapy and then the emdr and other trauma therapies um i had a emdr session a 40 minute session the other day and um it really walked me through some things that were in a way 
what I said at the end. I said, boy, that those are the things that were haunting me for so long. And they were just things about going to school, going into that particular school where, you know, I wasn't treated very nice and bullies and I was the new kid and, uh, you know, four different schools, things like that. Um, and so we were able to kind of walk through some of those things through this EMDR. And, and then I was at the chiropractor the other day as well. So um, I think there are some value points in a lot of them. But I looked at the AA and uh, Smart Recovery. And what they came down to is that they um, are both for the, let's say, the top top two, let's say, out there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in the research, it showed that they were, um, AA had a leg up on the smart, but it was, it was extremely close and they were both very valuable, valuable um, programs. And we kind of were talking these, you know, alternate therapies. I think a lot of the alternate therapies that I saw were really kind of based in more of a, like an aftercare. You know, what happens after, after three months, you know, you probably have aftercare routine that you do to maintain, uh, you know, the life that you want to maintain. You know, you get up at a certain time, you, Hopefully you drink coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the next episode should be the two unspoken addiction, most addictive drugs, coffee and coffee and cigarettes, really. Coffee Um, and cigarettes. But I did did find something now that you're talking about like maintenance after... um, Maintenance after... But there's something called the maintenance model or matrix model, which is like a short lived um, 16 week treatment approach. It's intensive outpatient um, and it goes through different steps of, of recovery. It goes um, individual, there's different processes involved individual psychotherapy, early recovery skills, relapse prevention, family education, 12 step programs urine testing, relapse analysis, and social support groups. So that seems more like um, a behavioral therapy to help acclimate, you know, the newborns that come out of treatment or addiction um, to help them acclimate, you know, and establish routines in in the world. Gotcha. And could that be like on a case-by-case type basis where, uh, you know, the treatment center, the therapist would recommend that type of reintegration program to society by halfway house type of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I know of a a person that's close that um, thrived in that particular environment and was able to you know, maintain and do really, really well. And just this person's just a beautiful soul. And they, um, but once out of it and back to, you know, the regular world, I guess, just couldn't, couldn't do it. Just couldn't, couldn't maintain it but would be the perfect person to say, wow, you are ready. You are a model of what we're trying to achieve here. And we'd love you to come back and tell us, you know, how we went out there. But a month later, it would just be, they would be right back. And this happened over and over and over and over and over, literally, uh, possibly 15 to 20 treatments, ICU with 
you know, blowing mm -hmm. a 4.40, you know, a dead uh, on a uh, alcohol level, blood alcohol, and just really sad. And now they're like put away, you know, in kind of behind bars and uh, absolutely thriving again, you know. Mm. But out in the world, it's just such a different, just a, such a different story that, um, and you can't be in aftercare or halfway house for the rest of your life, or maybe can you? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I had, there was someone I became, you know, friendly with when I was in treatment and seemed like they were doing well and they were, they got out of, of treatment and went to a halfway house and then we connected at some point after it was through the, they were through with that and you know our phone conversations it was just very very hectic and i felt like they were hiding something turns out they were hiding beers and uh, whatever they were drinking and i just you know i had to cut myself off from that relationship but i think that's you know another examples like yours where this person would really benefit from some sort of structure but how you know how can you stay in treatment forever how can you stay in a halfway house forever i don't you know, that's a tricky yeah. situation i mean you, that's a tricky situation but there are treatment programs out there for maintenance i think you know like we saw with uh, the matrix model there and other groups so yep. and, and those again, yeah i just think it can king still comes down to that one thing even um when you're at your worst you know your probably desire to stop is probably at its highest when at, when you're at your best is when your desire to you know stay sober should be its highest you know but it wanes kind of like well you know maybe i could i could just have a one or two or and we always you know we know where that can lead um, so I'm not big on the, uh, you know, oh, just try to maintain it model. I just yeah. I think that's just kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I agree with you there. So, um, gosh, there's one. Okay. Yeah, my, my brain had it for a second and I lost it. <laughs> um, so what I would like to do is if you can send, you know, go send me the email for the, um, with the PowerPoint and the links and everything, because the oh, only yeah. thing I have, I don't, I don't have like a website or anything, but I do have that um twitter page and i thought putting that those links out there on the twitter page would be really valuable um you know for the folks that are listening can go to the get on that um the twitter page and find it or do you have a place on uh twitter as well that you you're going to post it i do have a twitter i'll post it there um I don't, I guess my Twitter handle is um, at Calamity Reeves, uh, but I can put that on there and uh, email it to you as well. Definitely, yeah, because we definitely want to get, you know, keep putting that information out there, keep, keep looking, keep doing some more research, doing some things and, um, and if, you know, you find someone that um, might be a good fit for, uh, don't you have a, like an announcement that you wanted to make to the podcast world or no? Um, I'm going to be putting this on my podcast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so watch out for that world. Yes, yes, yes. You're going to be putting it out on 
Do you, well, not, I, I don't know what the name is. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, yeah. But hopefully, you know, we can share what we've experienced and curated here with Twitter world and Spotify world and all the other virtual worlds out there to get real life help for people. Absolutely. I agree with 100%. And um, I think we're going to have to do this again real soon. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Pete. And um, we'll be seeing you. All right. I'll talk to you very soon. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Gotta figure out how Twitter works. Uh, I was, rec I don't know how to stop record. Oh, right there.